As you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, let's pray together again in submission and dependence on our God. Triune God, you are the God of all glory and grace who has revealed in your word your perfection and your plan. We thank you in particular for your perfect plan for the God-man Jesus Christ to become the mediator that we need to live a perfect life unlike the life of sin that we have lived, to selflessly give himself on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. We thank you that you vindicated his perfection and your plan by raising him from the dead and elevating him to the seat of majesty on high to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you for making us to be a people for your own possession. May you continue to teach us to proclaim your excellencies. Show us more of yourself from your word. Cause us from the truth of this text to be convicted, encouraged, and given courage for the days ahead. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Memorial Day is an excellent opportunity, even as Steve prayed this morning. It's an excellent opportunity for us to remember the value of selfless sacrifice. It's also a time where we reflect on the fragility of human life. So even as you're turning to Acts chapter 12... I ask you to take just a minute to think about something that we all think about sometimes. Do you ever fear for your life? Do you ever fear for your safety and for the safety of those you love? Do you ever fear concerning your comfort and well-being? Do you ever fear for your soul and eternity? Do you ever fear concerning your usefulness to the kingdom of God? Today, when we look at Acts chapter 12, in Jerusalem, Herod Agrippa I is literally threatening the lives of the apostles, the leaders in the church. The presumption from an earthly perspective is that Such would threaten the survival, let alone the success of the progress of the followers of Jesus. But in the midst of a transitional phase, even for the early church, the author Luke uses this section concerning Herod to continue putting the persecution of the church in perspective. He deliberately describes this persecution and even martyrdom in the context of God's providential care for his people and God's providential power to use his people to advance the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So today, when we're we're progressing through Acts chapter 12, we're going to emphasize this question concerning fear, even fear of those who hold 
great earthly power and oppose the people of the Lord Jesus. Why don't we fear, why don't we fear Herod? We don't fear Herod because God holds all the power and authority in his hands. And God is the one that we trust and serve. From Luke's perspective, which should be ours as well, Herod doesn't wield any power outside the will of God. And we'll see that Herod's own life and eternity are in God's hands. So as we observe what God will allow with the Apostle James and what God decides to do in this instance with rescuing Peter and God's response to Herod accepting worship, let's solidify our personal and corporate conviction that through Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit, we trust and serve the one true God who holds all power and authority in his hands. Last week, we, we looked a little at, at Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 5 to go with the end of chapter 11, but let's look again at James's life in God's hands, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after Passover to, to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Again, from an earthly perspective, it looks like Herod holds an immense amount of power, such that he can falsely accuse James of drawing people after false gods and put him to death, cut off his head. But what happens the moment James's head is severed? His eternal soul is immediately ushered into the presence of God. Because James was given eternal life at the moment he trusted his life to Jesus Christ as Lord, repenting of sin and self and turning to God through Jesus Christ. In fact, Psalms 116 verse 15, the psalmist tells us, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. We may hold some measure of fear or apprehension concerning the process or the means that leads to our death, but God's people do not need to fear death or even those who might put us to death. We're in Acts chapter 12. Do you remember Luke also authored the gospel of Luke? And in Luke chapter 12, he tells us that Jesus said there in verses four and five, we do not fear death because we fear God through faith in Jesus Christ. We fear God because we have come to know him. Remember Jesus saying, don't fear those who have power to kill the body and then can't do anything else to you. But I tell you, fear him who after he kills the body has power to, has powerful control over your eternal life. He can even cast into hell. I tell you, fear him. And in the same context of, uh, of Luke chapter 12 then, Jesus will tell them, therefore I tell you that you should acknowledge Christ before men, because then he will acknowledge you before God. 
And he tells the parable of the rich young fool who doesn't fear God. And then he tells his people, do not be anxious for anything if you belong to God. Don't be anxious over your life. If we will pursue the kingdom of God first, then all of these other things will be cared for as well. So we don't fear death because we fear God through faith in Jesus. We fear God because we've come to know him and we know of God. And what we know of God is that he is trustworthy. We know of God that he's worthy of our love, our adoration and our admiration. So to fear God is to know God and to know God is to trust him, love him and obey him. But James, a member of Jesus' inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, the brother of John and the son of Zebedee, this James has been put to death by the sword, and that's a lot for the church to reckon with. To make matters worse, from an earthly perspective, Herod sees that this pleases to maintain a heavenly perspective of God's providential work in the world and care for his people. We have to take a step back and realize, why was Herod even able to kill James and imprison Peter? Because God authorized him to do so. It was God's will to bring James home at this time and in this way. None of this happens apart from God's perfect knowledge and his intentional will. God wasn't napping when James was killed, but then woke up to, to defend Peter. No, Herod has no power here except for what God allows. And God's perfect justice also means that ultimately Herod will be judged and the one who has faith in Christ will be vindicated just as Jesus himself was vindicated in his resurrection from the dead and his exaltation to the seat of majesty, King of kings and Lord of lords. The sad part for Herod, as we will see, is that he thinks he's getting away with being an oppressive tyrant. But ultimately, even if God permits something, he sees all and judges all, and one day justice will be served. This context, that as we continue, gives further clarity to these same conclusions that I'm already describing for you. So let's continue to see Peter's life in God's hands. From an earthly perspective, Herod holds all the cards and has Peter securely held captive. Look at verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, the last night before, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Now, we learned in verse 4 that Peter is being guarded by by four guards rotating in shifts. There were 16, and they would rotate in shifts. This is probably a reference to the four night watches, according to the Roman custom with these soldiers. And Peter is, at any time, he is chained between two of them, and two others are standing guard. And it appears to be, as I said, the final night before he would be brought out for public trial. Talk about a rescue at the 11th hour. Let's read on about Peter's unlikely sleepy escape, verses 7 through 11. 
And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and said to him, and he woke him up, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. So there's a bright light and loud noises. <laughs> and the angel said to him, dress yourself or gird yourself. So this might actually mean, you know, wrap that rope or belt around you and put on your sandals. Tie your belt, tie your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And listen, listen to verse 9. And he went out and followed him, but he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When he had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. In this unlikely sleepy escape, there are some really amazing things taking place in these, in these verses. The angel has to thump Peter on the side to wake him. I'm not surprised that Peter's a deep sleeper. I'm surprised that he's asleep at all. He's slated to be executed tomorrow. If Peter's sleeping, whom does Peter clearly know and trust? The sentiment from David in Psalm 4.8 must express Peter's confidence as well. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I love verse 7 of Psalm 4 as well, because it expresses that knowing God and having a relationship with him is of greater value and joy than anything the world can offer. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Peter is joyful and resting in God the night before he expects to be executed. Herod went to bed undoubtedly drinking wine and carousing with his rich and important friends he'd wake up to having lost his prisoner. Now, none of the other things that follow with Peter could have been quiet, as we said, except for maybe getting dressed. So the Lord must have put everyone else into a deep sleep, or at least he cut off all of their senses to what's happening. God can obviously do whatever he wants, and God does do whatever he wants. All of this is his. The escape is... This escape is all so unlikely, and Peter's still groggy, so he thinks it's a dreamlike vision. We shouldn't be surprised by that, and based on recent history, hasn't Peter recently had a dreamlike vision on the rooftop when he was hungry and he was told, don't call unclean what I have made clean? So the Lord must have, again, put everyone else in a deep sleep. Peter thinks he's still sort of having a dream. I believe that Luke wants us to understand that this escape is, is more than just improbable, it's impossible. And Peter was probably imprisoned at the Tower of Antonia, also called the Antonia Fortress. It's a military gar garrison adjacent to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, where the, the whole Roman garrison for Jerusalem was likely quartered. But even if some of them are sleeping, there were supposed to be guards posted at positions in the night watch, and Peter walks right past one of, one of these and then two of these 
groups of one century or groups of centuries, it's no wonder he thought he was dreaming. But God is powerful enough to deliver us at any time and in any way that he sees fit. Doesn't that give you comfort? If, if you suffer anything, it is not outside the perfect will of God. He can and will deliver you in any way that he sees fit whenever he decides to do so. God is trustworthy and he knows what is best. Are you willing to trust him? This time Peter was rescued, but would Peter not one day also be put to death at the hands of the Romans? Still trusting God that he knows what is best. If we are not delivered, then such is God's definite will and plan. We can trust him. So Peter finally wakes up enough to realize that God just delivered him from Herod's hand and from what the Jewish leaders wanted, which was his death. Let's continue and look at verses 12 to 14. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. We're gonna, in the next few chapters, we're going to hear more about this John, also called Mark. And he went to Mary's house where many were gathered together and were praying. There they are again, praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So here we have this surprising knock at the gate, and it's hilarious. No trouble escaping the prison. No trouble with the iron city gates, evidently also shut at night for safety. But getting into Mark's mom's house proves to be a pretty difficult task. I have this uh, image for you where Bob Deffenbaugh, when he was teaching this passage, he had his, his uh, relative create this little comic strip that says, Peter behind bars. And then you see him standing in front of Mary's house. It was easier to get out of prison than into Mary's house. On a more serious note, we find a large group of disciples praying together again on this night. We pray because we trust God, not because we can manipulate God. God is not beholden to us. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, in heaven, God's will is perfectly obeyed. That means this prayer is not just for God's power to accomplish his will, but that people's hearts will be wholly submissive to God, including and especially the very ones praying these dependent words. When we pray, we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, just as Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And that is what we mean. God, do what you know is best and for our highest good and your greatest glory. We trust you. Another side note, although it isn't the main point here, it informs our understanding of the life and the situations of the early church. We find out that Mark's mom, with his dad probably deceased, would have been pretty well-to-do to have such a large house and servants, likely in the upper city of Jerusalem. She, used, she, she hospitably used her large home as one of the meeting places for believers in Jerusalem, which historically seems to have been the case for the first two or three centuries of the church wherever the gospel spread. 
We hear this again in a place like Romans chapter 16, verse 5, that they're meeting in people's homes. The church is gathered, to the church gathered in your home. But let's go back to the action. How does the prayer meeting, these people gathered, praying late at night apparently still, for, for James and probably for, for Peter's courage and for their boldness and courage. God, if it's your will, we know that you can rescue Peter, not knowing if he's going to rescue Peter. And look what happens in verses 15 and 16. She goes, Rhoda runs and tells them, and they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, oh, it must be his angel. It must be, it's either Peter's ghost or his guardian angel. It can't be Peter. It's not possible for Peter to get out of the Tower of Antonia. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. To tell you the truth, I'm not at all shocked at their disbelief. And then their amazement at seeing Peter well and at the gate. They they probably had been praying for courage if Peter was killed like James, and they probably prayed for God to miraculously rescue Peter, knowing that God could do so if it was his will. But like me, they still marvel at God when he does it. Don't you do that? You've been praying for something, and then God chooses to answer that prayer in his mercy, sometimes in a better way than you knew how to pray for, and you just marvel at God. It happens to me all the time, and I say, when I'm telling you about it, I'll say I shouldn't be surprised, but I am. God is truly amazing. Acts chapter 12, verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Peter apparently came to them on this night at this location because he expected some of them to be there. He knew this is where some of them would be. And he wanted them to know of God's deliverance, but he couldn't stick around. Peter and presumably all of the apostles will now have to be more careful about their public presence. I guess this this could inform us a little bit about, you know, when when we're... stuck in a place where we have to take a stand for God and there is, there is no other way for us to avoid persecution, then we still stand for God. But we see in the example of the lives of the apostles too that there are times where you run away, live to die another day. But but even though Peter kind of has to go underground, and probably all of the apostles have to go underground at this point, and remember we're saying, we're seeing this transition to the eldership being the leaders of the churches in Jerusalem, and the same will begin to be the case in all of these churches, to leave local elders to guide the churches. But even though the apostles have to go underground, that doesn't slow the spread of the gospel. We're going to see that in verse 24. As I mentioned last week, the James then that that Peter speaks of is James the elder in the Jerusalem church, who is the half-brother of Jesus and the author of the letter of James in the New Testament canon. Now let's read on to see how Herod reacts to losing his prisoner. Verses 18 and 19, now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. 
And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. There's no explanation except that they were in on it, in Herod's mind. Then he went down from Judea, from Judea to Caesarea, and he spent time there. Herod has a problem with a disappearing prisoner. And the text says, no little disturbance, no kidding. Because look what happens to the soldiers who let prisoners get away. In Roman custom, whatever, whatever the prisoner was guilty of, if they let that prisoner get away, they suffered the penalty for that prisoner. And in this case, they were put to death because Peter got away. I think Herod then leaves the area to let the frustration of the Jewish leaders settle down. Somehow he let Peter slip right through his hands. So he goes to Caesarea, leaving Jerusalem. Just to reflect a moment before we go on to Herod's life in God's hands. Think about the fact that compared to God's eternal and limitless power and authority, Herod's power and reach is exceedingly feeble and limited. Remember Jesus saying to Pilate in John 19, you would have no authority over me if it were not given to you from above, John 19, 11. The same thing that Jesus says to Pilate is true for you. That even though God has given us to, to submit to civil authorities unless they cause us to be disobedient to God, if they should threaten our lives, they have no authority over us except that which is permitted by God. Not only is his authority contingent upon God, but Agrippa's very life is in God's hands, which is our final section today before Luke's patented summary sentence. So look with me at verses 20 to 23, seeing that arrogant Herod suffers the consequences of self-glorification instead of giving glory to the one true God. Let's see how it happens. Chapter 12, verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, or actually this describes he's, he's having a, an ongoing angry dispute with the leaders of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and, and having persuaded Blastus, who is the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country, the whole region of Phoenicia, depended on the king's country for food. Herod, Herod doesn't rule Phoenicia with Tyre and Sidon as its major cities, but he has huge influence in the region, and these Greek cities apparently depend on territory, Agrippa's territories for vital food supplies. And so he, he holds the power. We don't know what had come between them, why they're fighting, but then they had convinced Blastus a close personal assistant to the king, to put in a good word so that they could have an audience with Agrippa. So Agrippa comes to them now with all the, he's holding all the cards once again. And so he comes dressed in his fanciest robe. Listen to verses 21 to 23. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, his shiny robes. He took his seat upon the throne and he delivered an oration to them. So they continue with flattery, and the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. 
And apparently he accepted this praise and immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Unlike what Peter did when he, remember Peter immediately rejecting worship when Cornelius had, had fallen down at his feet? Peter immediately rejected worship in chapter 10 and Paul and Barnabas will do the same in Acts chapter 14 in Lystra when they're, they're called gods No, 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 they tear their clothes. We are not people to be worshiped. In contrast to that, Herod receives and relishes this praise. Oh, the voice of a God. Yeah, that's right. We are told about the condition of his heart and why God has an angel strike him with deadly sickness. Immediately, he is struck with sickness because he did not give God glory. And this manner of death that's described as him being eaten out by worms, and that's what he dies from, is painful worms. This is corroborated by the Jewish historian Josephus. So though though it's not inspired, Josephus reported that Agrippa had to be carried from there to the palace. He was struck immediately. He had to be carried from there to the palace where he died at the age of 54 after five days of agonizing stomach pains caused by worms. In the end, what is the result of Herod's arrogance and self-glory? Judgment from God. And what's the result of all his efforts and those of the Jewish leaders to put a stop to the continued spread of more and more people following Jesus? What is the result God's gospel goes forward in verse 24. As Luke so frequently does, he adds a summary of how the Spirit continues to grow the church in the midst of all of these occurrences. Verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. People continued to come to faith in Jesus Christ because the Spirit of God did not stop moving through the people of God and using the people of God for more people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. How much of a dent did Herod put in the progress of Christ's church? None. Remember Luke telling us earlier that the believers were gathered in Jerusalem and they were increasing in number, but they hadn't yet started obeying Christ's command to go to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. What caused them to do so? Persecution. And what happens here? The church grows out of persecution. These people will die for Jesus. These people live for Jesus and die for Jesus knowing that the life that they have been given in God is of greater value than this life right here, right now. This goes away, that will never go away. You kill one of us, another will take our place. Because it's not about us, it's about the Spirit of God in the people of Jesus Christ. You can't stop what God is doing. So we don't need to fear when Herod puts one of us to death. We don't need to fear when Herod imprisons some of us. We don't need to fear when the culture has begun telling us that we're now the immoral ones. God is on our side, or more like, we are on the right side. We do not fear Herod 
Because Herod wields no power apart from the perfect will and intentional authorization of God. No harm will come to us apart from the deliberate providence of a loving and good God. We are always and only as safe and prosperous as God desires for us to be. We are only and always as safe and prosperous as God desires for us to be. And God will prosper his church. He will build his church. We don't fear Herod because God holds the life of Herod in his hands. God holds all the power and authority even over the most powerful person, entity, spiritual being, and spiritual forces. No one is like our God. Psalm 118, verse 6, the psalmist says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And so we're reminded to reflect this morning that our eternal life is in God's hands. I must ask you, gathered here, in the presence of God, amongst his people, have you trusted only in God through Jesus Christ to save your soul? Have you trusted in the perfect work of Jesus Christ alone to restore you to God and to bring you into his presence forever? I encourage you, I implore you, and I, I encourage all of us to prayerfully trust in God so that we will gain an eternal perspective. From an earthly standpoint, Herod holds a lot of power, but not from an eternal perspective. An eternal perspective means recognizing that there is an aspect of us that will live forever, our souls. After this life, we will either dwell eternally in the presence of God, or we will remain separated from God in an eternal hell. This is true for us and for everyone we know and everyone we encounter. An eternal perspective means understanding that most things will pass away. But the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was proclaimed to you. Peter describes it this way, this word that was proclaimed to you. In his letter, in the first chapter, he says in verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That's your life here. <laughs> knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, 
who through him are believers in God. God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Above all then, an eternal perspective means knowing the eternal God. We do not fear Herod because all power and authority is in God's hands and our eternal life is in the perfect and trustworthy hands of God. Let's pray. Father, this morning we're reminded of your power and authority. And it's from your word that we understand that you're not just all-powerful and sovereign, you are good. And that's why your sovereignty is such good news and your perfect justice is such good news, making your love and your mercy and your grace such good news. We are desperately sick and wandering, doing our own thing, rebelling from you, thinking that we, we can handle this ourselves and wanting to glorify ourselves and wanting to usurp your role and become gods ourselves. And when you reveal yourself to our hearts, we see just who we are and we fear you, God. But when we fear you, when we see you as you are, we love you and we trust you. And so, God, since you have given us the obedience of faith through the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that that obedience will bear rich fruit for your kingdom. Help us not to fear anything but you. Lord, we pray that you give your people courage across the globe. Give us the kind of courage that you have given to your people throughout centuries, that even though they may take this life, They cannot take the eternal life which you have bestowed. Thank you that we have that assurance and hope. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.